What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Environmentality. We are on episode three of our six-part coffee series on what is sustainable coffee. This episode, I had the privilege of interviewing a good friend, a phenomenal surfer, and an amazing coffee farmer, John Carlo Hanske. Him and his wife, Sophia, run Mapache Coffee which is a coffee company based out of El Salvador, where they have farms all over the country and sourced their beans to Europe and here in the United States. I was just talking to Giancarlo this morning and was able to acquire a list of all of the coffee shops and roasters here in the U.S. that source their coffee. So go ahead and scroll through that list of coffee shops and roasters and grab yourself a bag of coffee if it's a shop close to you and you recognize it, or I'm sure a lot of these places will allow you to order online and they'll ship it to you as well. All right, everyone, hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you back here for next week where we talk about post-harvest management. Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Today we have a very special guest, a dear friend of mine, Giancarlo Hantke. He is a coffee producer in El Salvador, and he is the owner of Mapache Coffee, and I'm very excited for him to be on. He's going to be talking to us today about coffee production and processing and just the whole sustainability of that industry. So thanks for joining me today and welcome to the show. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> awesome. So how about Giancarlo, you just give us maybe a brief background on how you and your family got interested in coffee and, and how you began to start producing. Okay. Actually, I'm a fifth generation coffee grower from my mom's side of the family. I started getting interested in coffee since I was a little kid. My mom used to take me to the farms all the time, and I used to go with my grandfather to the farms and check things out. And I started uh, falling in love with the plants, the fruit, the whole process, being outdoors. So I think my passion for coffee started at a very young age. At that age, I did it. When, when, I, when I was a kid, I, I, I don't think I was sure I was going to end up working in the, in the industry, but it just happened. I, I was um, working at a carton factory, a factory that produced a carton out of paper. And I stopped working there and moved to coffee. And I've been there for 12 years now. Well, what, what do you think kind of sparked that transition? Obviously, you had maybe primed more or less your whole childhood. But what sparked that transition from working in the factory to coming back to the farm? My father and my mother, they both had their own farm. And it wasn't a managed a well or or they were not interested in, in, in the in the in the coffee business. They had that as a side business or maybe even as a hobby. But I I I knew we could do something more interesting in, in with the farms and, and with the coffee processing and everything. I, I at that time I didn't understand very well how it how it worked. But um, I got myself educated in a lot of uh, seminars, programs, and in school. And we, we used to have a very good um, school here in El Salvador, but it disappeared. But that's how I, I got into it. You know, I, I, I thought I saw the potential and, and I loved being in the farms. That was maybe the, the, main, the, main, the main reason. It wasn't all about the business, but being there, you know. <laughs> 
For sure. And and I know obviously your wife is very interconnected in the business with you. You guys yes. do a lot of stuff together. Uh, does she have a legacy with coffee production yes. as well? And, and and what was her perspective on joining in on this mission with yeah, you? Yeah, she's, she's also a fifth generation grower from both sides of her family. She also has her own farm. When I started working and the things got a little more more complicated, we got more farms. We started building the, the processing station. The business got bigger. We had more coffee volume to deal with. She started helping me with the marketing and the and the and the social media and and contacting the clients and getting everyone interested in our coffee. So she helps me in in, in the marketing side of the business. Awesome, yeah, it was it was amazing being down there in January of last year and just seeing how interconnected you guys are. I know it's obviously really difficult, I think, for a lot of couples to work in business together, but you guys just work so naturally. You flow <laughs> together very well. You complement each other. And it was just really fun to see you guys just interacting and having fun. You know, it just looks like you guys yeah. are really enjoying yourselves and it's really beautiful. To I see mean, that. that's basically the main reason we, we, we chose a life in coffee is because we love it. You know, it's, it's so interesting and it's so so big of a of a business you can you can specialize yourself in so many areas and you never stop learning you know Mm -hmm, for sure so i'm curious maybe if you just want to give us a little bit of like your philosophy in terms of your approach to coffee i'm sure how you're producing now is perhaps different than your parents or your grandparents or the generations before you what are maybe some unique things or, or new things that you guys are doing in terms of production that uh, yeah, it's just kind of really aiding into your philosophy of sustainability and, and, and that. I think the opportunity to, to educate yourself in coffee is the is the driving force of, of the things we're doing differently. Back in the day, it was all agriculture, producing, 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 and the producer used to turn in their product to big, big milling stations, but they never got to taste the coffee. So they never got to understand what they were producing. They just produced the fruit, but they didn't know if it was good or bad, how it tasted. Mm-hmm. So I think our, our what what we're doing differently is that we have been able to educate ourselves and in, in the quality of the coffee and copying our own coffees, understanding where our good coffees come from, why they they taste better from this farm or the other. So. I think that's that's one of the things that we have done differently. My parents, my grandparents, they they never cupped a, a cup of coffee, so they weren't able to to understand the product they were producing as well as we can right now. So maybe just for the listeners, you want to maybe explain what the Specialty Coffee Association is and what coffee cupping is. Cupping coffee is basically a grading your coffee based on several things a flavor aromas acidity balance and other things and and i think that's the that's the that's the magic of it you know having a a common language to be able to tell people what your your coffee tastes like and what the attributes of that coffee is and uh also I think that's 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 the magic of it, you know, being able to to understand the the coffee. And so, Specialty Coffee Association and SEA, they put out is that is that the acronym SEA? Yes, yes, SEAA, yeah. And so they put out, I guess, essentially criteria or or scores. What's like the number that you guys are desiring to hit? 
in terms so, of specialty coffee and what does that mean? The SCA says that everything above 80 points, it's, it's considered specialty. So if you have an 85, if that's a very good coffee, you have an 89, that's like super good coffee and above 90 points, that's, you know, amazing. Just a few coffees in the world taste, taste like that or hit that wow. floor. Yeah. What's the, what's the highest score you guys have gotten on your farms? 89. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. And so what does that mean for the economics of production? Like how much does a 89 sell per pound versus like a 75? It, it, it depends a lot in the volume too. You could have one bag available or you could have 500 bags available. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, you play with those two, two sure. things, you know, the, sure. uh, the score and the amount of coffee you have available. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So is there a way to calculate maybe like pound per pound the difference or is it just too nuanced? It's usually a lot. We, we, we cup every single lot that enters the, the mill. So every day, for example, we, we get five to six different lots from the farm every day. And we have like 80 days of harvest. So you multiply it 80 times five, you have 400 different lots available to cup so you now you have an idea of how many how many batches or lots or however you want to call it we have to cup and that's where where we find uh, these coffees is there any particular variety that is your favorite that tends to cup high i personally like pacamara a lot because it was a variety developed locally and I think it's it's a it's a Salvadoran pride that variety. It's, it's mm-hmm. not easy to grow, but but I really like it. It's it's a it has a very particular taste and high acidity. And we have been planting it for a couple of years now. We have a few hectares of it in several farms, and and it's one of our best coffees around. I'm actually drinking it right now. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Good, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So maybe let's go back to the farm. I'd love to know maybe what are some of the the challenges that you guys are facing now on the farm in terms of production? Wow, that's a tough question. I think it, it <laughs> uh, I I have I have I talked to a lot of people who have farms in different countries and it's amazing how it changes from country to country. El Salvador, poof, it's I think we have been a, in a downward spiral since the war. I think the war really destroyed the whole coffee production chain here. And since then, we haven't been able to work it out again. So, But right now, if you ask me the question right now, what are the problems we're facing? I would say plagues is one. The leaf rust is definitely one. But also, the we have been seeing several others very violent lately, like the one I told you before, the anthracnose. Every year, I mean, when we have strange weather, too much rain, too much sun, too much wind or whatever, we get the diseases or new diseases. So I would say the plagues are one of the toughest challenges we're facing. And do you feel that in recent years, with the impacts of climate change, these things have been becoming more severe. Do you feel like these are just typical and normal or a product of climate change? Definitely. 
You know, I, I remember when I started in coffee, the leaf rust always existed. It was there, but it wasn't a problem. You know, you don't, you didn't even have to apply any fungicide or spray nothing at the at the plants. You just saw it there, and you know it was going to go away. But in 2011, we got a a very very bad rain, tropical storm. It rained 400 millimeters in one day. In one day, that's 40 centimeters of water in one day. And the next summer was the leaf rust outbreak, the very famous leaf rust outbreak in in, in Central America. And and some of the researchers say that that kind of leaf rust was there and the the amount of water that, that poured down during that, the tropical storm was one of the causes that, that fungus got out of control. So just put that in perspective for people who don't understand the metric system, 40 centimeters is a little over a foot of rain in one day, which is crazy. And so leaf rust, again, is a fungal pathogen. And so it thrives in humid environments. It's passed around with water. And so it becomes really damaging when rains come when they're not supposed to, or they come in excessive volumes. Or the combination of rain, sun, and, and, and warm temperatures. It's Mm-hmm. perfect what perfect scenario for fungus sure sure so i'm curious then you know we chatted a little bit about this kind of need for contextualized management based on your microclimate mm-hmm. and so for example something like a leaf rust which again is a fungus needs moisture humidity and you talked a little bit about when you're growing at high altitudes perhaps the need for shade trees isn't as necessary because then it's creating this microenvironment that's more conducive for fungus. Yeah. Could you maybe share a little bit about, about that and, yeah. and how shade grown can be a good or bad thing at times? Yeah, and, and we have several farms, and we the, the, the lowest altitude farm is at 700 meters above sea level, and our highest uh, altitude farm is at 1,400, so basically double. Right. From 700 to 1,400. The shade system we have in one and the other, it's di- so different. For example, in the one that's in the lower altitude, you have like three different canopies of trees. And the one in higher altitude, we only have windbreakers and basically one one kind of, of shade tree. So the, the higher you go, the, the less shade you need. But lately, I think what we're doing is basically trying to build a thicker canopy. Like I told you before, the last year we were we did like a very very radical pruning of the shade because we wanted to produce a more volume, but it also damaged the trees a lot. So what we're doing right now is letting the trees grow during the rainy season again. And we're going to try to establish a much thicker shade system in the farm. Gotcha. Because typically you would, uh, you would cut back on the shade tree shade trees before bloom, right? Because you want to have more light for the coffee trees. Yeah. You, you do it before or after, but it has to do it. You have to do it before the rain starts. That's the ideal time. In El Salvador, we only have two seasons, the dry season and the, and the rainy season. So uh, pruning the shade is usually done uh, before the rain starts. That's April, May, more or less. Mm-hmm. 
And that's because the trees require rain to be able to blossom. Yep. Yep. So when the when the cherries are ripening, November, December, you have your canopy again. Right. And then that signals then you have shade for the dry season. Exactly. So then that way the trees are protected, exactly. there's more moisture. Exactly. So you cool. you open up the shade during the rain and then mm-hmm. the shade grows again November, December, you'll have your canopy again. Perfect. Yeah, I love that. I just love the idea of, you know, working again with like these natural systems and harnessing like the ecology to again create this diversity and beneficial system to allow this beautiful product to grow. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe do you want to chat maybe a little bit more about what certifications you guys have, Rainforest, Oots, anything like that, Cafe Practices? What are those types of certifications you guys have? Yeah, we have the Cafe Practices certification at our farms and at our mill. Uh, that's for the Starbucks uh, client. That that okay. certification usually comes with a purchasing contract. It's, it's not like you do it uh, without a reason. It usually comes with the purchasing contract, and uh, we have been working with them for three years now. And what all does that certification mean for you guys? Are there any things that you have to do differently to meet that criteria? They they do an audit on all the farms, and and you then you have a scorecard a that's basically checking on how you how you manage your farms regarding the environment, regarding the, the employees you have, a good practices, basically. And sure. uh, we didn't have to really change a lot of things. We, we were basically doing everything what, what needed, what's needed to be done. So we didn't have a lot, of, a lot of changes in our farms, basically. Yeah, because you guys are already practicing a lot of the sustainability yeah. things. That's yeah. huge. A lot of yeah. things are, it's, it's common sense, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately not for a lot of people, but I yeah, know, it is. I know, sure. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's true. And I think you bring up a good point because when you, again, are growing with this ecological mindset, it is common sense because you can use the natural environment to bring about the benefits that you need, like shade or yeah. beneficial for pollinators or whatever yeah. it may be. So not using not using certain products, you know, that are harmful for the environment and the people who work at the farms. Yeah, it's 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 common sense for some and, and like you said, it's not common sense for others. Sure, sure, sure. No, it's huge. So Okay, so some of the bigger issues are, again, impacts of climate change. You talked about some pests and diseases. Yep. What are maybe perhaps some solution strategies you guys are employing to try and mitigate some of these issues? Yeah. One of the big, big things that, that we think it's a, it's a solution is the shade system. Sadly, it's expensive to have, to have shade. El Salvador mm. is one of the few countries that still produces coffee with with a thick canopy it's, really? and it's because it's very it's very expensive because you have to prune it every year if you just yeah. if you just leave it there it'll it'll be so thick that the plant won't produce anything because no sun no sunlight will hit the leaves so 
every year we have to invest in, in, in pruning and trimming the shade. And, and that's actually the, the, the most expensive tasks in the farm. Really? Yes. Wow. And also the, the people who do it, they have to have the know-how how to do it because it's also very dangerous to climb up to those big trees and, and with machetes and chainsaws and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how tall are these trees and, and how are they getting to the top? Wow. Some of them are maybe five, six, seven meters tall. Just just the trunk of it. Then you have like several right. huge branches where you have two, three people cutting the same branch. And they're just shimming up there with like a rope? Or... With ropes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. and that's also a challenge, you know. A lot of people are leaving the farms here in El Salvador, so people with the know how with the know how on how to work under those conditions eh, are very scarce. You know, there's few people who can do it, so that's yeah. another challenge. You know, keeping your 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 team together and the good people with you. With the coffee crisis and everything, people are just leaving the farms and going to the cities or even going to the states. You know, you see it on the news, all the migration and everything. Yeah, that was something that when we were chatting with the researcher from UC Davis, she was saying that a lot of the growers or the laborers in Guatemala were going to Honduras or other areas yes. that can pay them more or, again, yeah, up to the states. Yeah. It's super unfortunate. You think the main issue that's driving that is just that there's not enough money being paid out to producers to be able to definitely support all that labor definitely definitely you see the market right now the 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 international coffee price it's around i'm not sure i haven't checked it in a while but for the past few years it has been between 90 and 130 for per, per pound so that means for example locally the producer is getting paid maybe 50 cent per pound so that's wow. Break and the break even point is is one twenty, one thirty. Doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. And so maybe that maybe you want to talk about how you are noticing that, and then the things that you're doing to try and add value to your coffee. Yeah. So th- that price is is paid to the people who turn in the the raw product. You know, the coffee cherries and. Then if you if you depot your coffee and turn in parchment, then you get paid a different price, for example. But then if you process your own coffee, you know what you're producing. You can cup your coffee, you can score your coffee, and then you can negotiate your coffee in a different way. So so that's what that's what helps a lot of farmers, you know, the, to know what, what they're producing and processing their own coffee. But that's very difficult here, you know. It's it's not easy. If you want to process your own coffee, then you have to to get through a lot of bureaucracy, to a lot of paperwork here with the local government, and uh, it's 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 difficult. And so, fortunately, you've been able to kind of break through that a bit. You want to maybe explain the difference between like uh, a regular coffee bean versus a honey versus a natural, and how that maybe changes the the coffee quality. Okay, it it changes the the coffee profile, the taste of the coffee. The the washed coffee is is a coffee that's depulped, and all the mucilage covering the the parchment is removed. It can be removed mechanically or manually. The honey coffee is basically a cherry that has only been depulped, but not washed. It's left with all the mucilage with the bean, and and you dry it like that. And then the natural is basically the cherry 
you don't deep open. You dry you dry the whole cherry. Yeah, and they look so beautiful. The difference in just the color when yeah. they're dried. And then obviously when you're leaving those different components of that fruit on the bean to dry, you're getting these enhanced flavors or unique profiles, as you're saying. Definitely. And that can then contribute to higher price or higher quality, a higher level special on the score. Definitely. The coffees will taste different. You know, they, they will they will have a different body. They they will be sweet, maybe a little sweeter. They will have maybe some wine notes or, or dark chocolate. With the honeys and, and, and naturals, what you're doing is you're making the fermentation longer. With the washed coffees, you're basically cutting mm. the fermentation immediately. So there's no fermentation in washed coffee. How much longer does a natural take to dry than a washed? It, if you dry it in a patio, it will take a twice twice the amount of days. So for a griller or a producer or a processor that wants to add value, then you have to take more time. And so time and that's space. where, again, that trade-off might be taking place. Yeah, time and yeah. space because to dry, to dry naturals, you need double the space because you have the red layer in the, in the big mm. beam still. So it's, it's, you need more space. Would you mind chatting a little bit about some of the new varieties you're doing? I know you had the Costa Rica 95, which is like a leaf rust resistant. I want to maybe talk about just your relationship with, was it, was it Costa Rica as a, a, an organization down there that's doing the breeding or? Yeah. When, when the, the leaf rust outbreak happened, a lot of people got interested in, in rust resistant varieties. But at the end of the day, that's a myth, you know. All varieties are susceptible to, to diseases. If you don't get leaf rust, then you'll get something else. So at the end of the day, it's, it's, you never get, get out of the problem. And usually, usually, I'm not saying that it's a rule. The, the leaf-resistant varieties don't taste as good as the other ones. It's sure, because, there's a trade-off. Yeah, there. they have a Robusta strain in it, usually a Timor. And uh, I'm not saying that they're, they don't taste good, but they don't taste as good. But yes, we experimented with a lot of those varieties. We have big lots planted with, with, with leaf-rust-resistant uh, leaf varieties. Yes. But it's been your experience then that the resistance isn't really effective and then whatever was bred into for the resistance, now you're lacking in quality or yield. Yeah, and at the end of the day, eh, they will get sick from another from another disease. It's, it's sure. you ha- you will have you always have to eh, spray something to those plants. So and it's usually the same fungicide for Roya for Leafrus, so doesn't make sense really yeah 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 so at the end of the day it's just ideal for you to to grow the varieties that have the highest level of quality exactly and just battle the the pests as they come and also the varieties that have been growing in the country for several decades they they're the the some coffee trees are are already um used to our farms and you can see it when we pick the cherries to do our nurseries you, you you see how they thrive. They are used to the soil, the environment, eh, everything. 
that's what we're doing right now. We're we're just picking up the the seed of the the old ancient Borbones, mm-hmm. Pacas, and Pacamaras, and that's what we're reproducing right now. Yeah, going with like the heritage varieties yeah. that they have the they're acclimatized to your region, True. and so they're able to better yeah. grow in that area. And yeah, that's what El Salvador is all about. You know, it's it's uh, we have been growing those varieties for two hundred years. So not the Pacamara but the Bourbon. So the country is known for that kind of coffee. It's a very good coffee for espresso, very creamy. It makes the bubbles and, and, and very chocolate. It has a chocolate taste. So we should, we should plan more of that instead of trying to change uh, varieties and, 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 and changing the cup, prof, cup profile of the country. Sure, and ultimately you want to maintain the cultural identity of El Salvador exactly. in the coffee. Exactly. So maybe that brings up a good discussion point. You know, what are maybe some of the other characteristics of Costa Rica or Honduras or Guatemala? Like, how is El Salvador different, or how are these other regions different compared to you guys in terms of their coffee that they're producing? Yeah, like I was saying, well, I've I've traveled to Honduras, Costa Rica. And I've noticed that a lot that the farms don't have cha- don't have shade. You know, that's mm. one of the main differences between the coffees they produce and the ones we produce. I'm not saying their coffees are better or ours are better, but for example, for the environment, definitely. You know, it's not the same thing to have a farm that doesn't have any shade tree at all, and just the sure. just the coffee there. Uh, some of our farms have more than a hundred different species of trees, so. You have a, a very rich environment for yeah, everything. a lot of biodiversity, mm-hmm. and that I'm sure brings in a lot of wildlife as well. True, right? true. Is that how you got the name Apache? Yeah, yeah. One of our farms are is very close to one of the biggest uh, national parks we have here in the country, called El Imposible, and uh, we have deer, uh, raccoons. Uh, there is also an animal that I'm not sure how it's called in English. It's called pesote. You see like uh, 10, 20 running around everywhere. Mm. So, yeah, that's how we, we got the name. My daughter actually gave it the name. Yeah, I agree. And so for people who don't speak Spanish, Mapache is raccoon. Yeah. 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 Super cute. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So I'm curious maybe to go back. I mean, have you seen any difference maybe with some of the coffee quality that's coming from you know, a shaded place versus a non-shaded place. I would assume that coffee that's grown without shade is going to be much more stressed. And you see this with a lot of fruits that a stressed plant will impose some of those stressed, you know, organic acids and and that type of thing that will impose into the quality and that will certainly hinder the profile. Definitely. One of the main things you see on a cherry that's ripe and on a shade farm it's it's very thick with mucilage, mm. very very thick. You you can even see the trucks that are dripping when they're wow. at, when they arrive at the mill. You see them dripping all the honey of the cherry, and then you have the the coffee grown at direct sunlight. It's 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 a how do you call it in English? It's a dry, dry, and and also coffee under shade it ripens slowly very slow and very very even very even i've seen it a uh, also uh, with direct sunlight sometimes it doesn't even ripen yeah it just gets so stressed out and it's not able to 
send all the nutrients and all the carbohydrates mm-hmm. to the fruit to have, you know, a full cherry. So maybe you want to touch on what is the significance of having uniform ripening on the farm and, and what does that do for your labor? Yeah, that's, that's one, that's one thing you want to have you. If I could choose to pick the entire farm on a single swipe, I would do it. But but we do three or four because we, we hand pick all our coffee and we only pick the ripe cherries. So in a tree, you will have red, yellow, green in the same tree. And, and you only pick the ripe ones. So for me, if the whole tree ripens uh, in one in one swipe, for me, that's perfect, you know. Get the coffee to the mill fast and taste the coffee, uh, cup the coffee fast, and I can, you know, ship the coffee faster. Where all are you guys exporting your coffee to? In the U.S., Canada, and Europe right now. Awesome. And where at in Europe? Um, this year we we exported some coffee to the to the U.K. to England. Last year we exported coffee to the U.K. and Germany. And then where could we find your coffee in the United States? The the or importing or or importing partners are based in South Carolina, so they sell to dozens of coffee shops. I'll let you know once once the container is there, and cool. and, and when I know who who's carrying our coffee, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, let me know, and then I'll put the link up on the on the show, and then awesome. that way people can find yeah, it. I'll give you the you. list. I'll give cool. you the list. Cool. That'd be great. So obviously, you have a very unique position in the coffee industry you're seeing you know the production happening on the front lines you're doing on processing cupping you you have a very robust perspective on the coffee industry as a whole if there's anything that you would want to communicate to consumers what would that be i would say know where your coffee comes from know where your food comes from you know a lot of people struggle to 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 produce coffee or or other products and and sometimes they're not a you know they don't get paid fairly or or they don't have good practices for producing that product so i would i would tell consumers to do their research you know to 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 buy ethical products and are there particular certifications that you think come with that not not really you know i've seen the both sides of the of the coin you know i've seen mm-hmm. people who have all sorts of certifications but i don't know how they got them <laughs> interesting yeah. interesting and then okay. you have pe- and then you have people who don't have any certifications and and they they are very ethical in how they produce their hmm. their, their product mm-hmm. you know so that, i mean that brings up a really you know difficult thing because as consumers you know, perhaps we want to just be able to see a label and think, you know, of course yeah. they're upholding all the standards, True. but it's a lot more difficult and challenging than that. And so really ultimately what it requires is relationships exactly. and having deeper, deeper research. So, you know, maybe be more difficult to do, but from, you know, environmental, from a social justice point of view, it just kind of requires consumers to be more knowledgeable about where their food and, and, and nowadays with, with all the technology and communications and social media, you can find out very quick, you know, who, who's growing what and sure. how they do it and if they, they're doing the right thing or not, you know. Sure. So speaking of which, what's uh, what's your social media and how can people follow along with Mapache? It's Mapache Coffee, basically. Cool. We're, we only have Instagram, but but that's our, our name and, and Instagram, Mapache Coffee. Awesome. Cool. 
Well, with that, I really want to just thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit about your world and the world of coffee production. So thanks so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks, Giancarlo. Thank you. Thank you.